Please open your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 1. Tonight we study verses 4 to 11. Acts chapter 1, beginning at verse 4. Listen now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The grass withers, the flowers fall, and the word of our God abides forever. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you for the wonderful events recorded in the book of Acts. Oh, how we give glory to Christ, ascended at your right hand. And Father, we pray that even tonight we would receive power, that we would bear testimony in his name. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. When Christians think of the parting words of Jesus, a number of New Testament texts inevitably come to mind. John chapters 4 to 16 records what is known as Jesus' farewell address. It was given in the upper room after the celebration of Passover, the institution of the Lord's Supper on the night of Jesus' arrest. And then we think of Jesus' words uh, after his resurrection, starting that very evening, as he sought to persuade his followers that he really was alive. John chapter 21 records Jesus' final meeting, his restoration of Peter, where he uh, restored the fallen disciple and commissioned him to feed my sheep, John 21, 17. Acts chapter 1, verse 3 tells us, however, that Jesus stayed with his disciples after that for 40 days, and he taught them about the kingdom of God. Well, what are the real last words of Jesus while he was on this earth? Well, they were spoken to his disciples moments before he ascended into heaven, from earth to heaven. And if last words are famous, then Jesus' final commission should hold an authoritative place in the minds of his people. Here are the real last words of Jesus, Acts 1.8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now Jesus spoke many times after that. We have the whole New Testament. But it's significant that the last words he spoke before his ascension refer to the spirit-empowered witness of the church to the gospel that would define the labors of his followers during the centuries before he returned, between his ascension and his second coming. It is probably wrong to say that in in these words he gave them a command, he gave them a commission. I'm going to say a commission is implied. But notice that everything he says there is something that he is going to do. It's things that the apostles are going to receive because he's going to give them. The Holy Spirit will come upon them. The Holy Spirit will give them power from on high, and that will enable their church foundational mission of bearing witness to Christ and his salvation. 
well, it reminds us that the indicative always comes before the imperative. It's what Christ has done that causes and empowers what we have done, but there is certainly an implied mandate that is clear. The church is to bear testimony to Christ's crucifixion and resurrection, relying on the power of the Holy Spirit to advance the kingdom of God through faith. Our Kent Hughes says this, they were These were Jesus' final earthly words. It's been 2,000 years, and Jesus has not during that time planted his feet on terra firma and audibly addressed his followers. Perhaps that silence is intended to prevent anything from obscuring Jesus' last words so they will continue to reverberate in the church's ear. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses." Well, Luke-Acts, which is in large respects a unified work, it identifies 50 days between the resurrection of Christ and the coming of the Spirit, when the, when the Spirit came on the believers at the Feast of Pentecost. And 40 of those days, we have learned, were spent with Jesus bearing proof of his resurrection and then instructing the apostles, the future apostles, uh, well, they're about to become the apostles, uh, about, his, about the kingdom of God. That's what we're told. He's instructing them. Now that leaves a 10-day gap between the ascension and the coming of the Spirit for which Jesus gave clear instructions in verse 4. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. That's what they were to do during the 10 days between the ascension and the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost. And those were anything but uneventful days. The final 10 days began with Jesus giving the apostles their commission, making them apostles. And then we have their witness, their eyewitness of Jesus' bodily ascension from earth to heaven. We'll see later in the chapter, during that same time, they sought a replacement for, the, for Judas among the 12, and Matthias is the one chosen by Lot, verses 21 to 26. And the rest of the time, we're told in verses 13 and 14, they were persevering in prayer. Those were not empty days by any means. Now, we can think of reasons why Jesus told them to stay in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was where everything had happened before. That's where the death and resurrection occurred. It made sense that they would stay there. We also have the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 2, verse 3, for out of Zion will go forth the law, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. But primarily they were to remain in Jerusalem because that is where Pentecost would be observed. And it was at Pentecost that the Holy Spirit would be poured out by the ascended Christ upon his church. Well, there's no doubt at all what Jesus meant then when he urged them to wait for the promise of the Father which he said, you have you heard from me. Now that is a clear indica- reference to the coming of the Holy Spirit. When he says, which you heard of me, undoubtedly I think he's referring to the farewell discourse, John 14 to 16, where he told them that when he departed, God would send another helper, another advocate, the King James Version says comforter, that actually has a, even in the King James language, that has a legal advocate overtone, Uh, Christ will leave and the Holy Spirit will be sent by the Father. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. John 14, 16 to 17. That is the promise of the Father. And we're reminded by that language that the Holy Spirit is the ultimate gift of the Father to his children. 
On one occasion, Jesus in Luke 11 was teaching his disciples to pray, and he made a, a comparison and contrast between earthly fathers and the heavenly fathers. And he pointed out that you, though you are evil, you give good gifts to your children. How much more will the, Holy, will the heavenly father give? We would think he would say better gifts. What he actually says, how much more will the whole, heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? The Spirit is the ultimate gift of the Father to his children. We remember how as well when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, the heavens were, heavens were opened and the voice of God audibly was heard. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. And so what gift will the Father give to the Son at the inauguration of his ministry with, with whom the Father is well pleased? Well, the answer is in Luke 3.22, the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. It is the promise of the Father, the choicest gift of heaven, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus makes clear the link between the promise of the Father and his own baptism. He he picks up on that very strand. And he goes on to say in verse 5, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so a clear reference was made here, a connection between John's baptism and the baptism that Jesus would give at Pentecost in a few days' time, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. John baptized with water. Now, the, the point of baptism was it was a dramatization of John's ministry. John's was a ministry of preparation. He was calling the people to a spirit of repentance that by being baptized, they were identifying themselves with the cleansing of sin that they needed. John came to show them their need of salvation and the washing of his baptism represented and united them sacramentally to their need of cleansing that it prefigured. Jesus, in contrast, came to bring the saving grace of God and by the gift of the Holy Spirit, he baptizes with the Spirit He gives life. He applies personally to people the salvation that comes by the life of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus' baptism identifies and unites his people with the Holy Spirit whom the Father sends that they may have life and power from heaven. Now, Jesus makes perfectly clear again that he's talking about Pentecost. When he speaks of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, he says it will be not many days from now. Well, we know that's Pentecost, verse 5. And one thing this reminds us, is actually a vitally important point, that the New Testament language of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not describing an experience that individual Christians have at certain points in their saving life. Many people think the baptism of the Holy Spirit is conversion, it's the new birth. Others, uh, very wrongly, believe it's a secondary experience. So you come to faith in Christ and then later you'll have a higher life experience. You'll be baptized by the Holy Spirit and that will take you to a higher spiritual plane than your average Christian. How wrong that is. Jesus shows us here, I'm going to put it this way, Jesus shows us here that the baptism of the Holy Spirit belongs not to the ordo salutis but to the historia salutis. What am I, now he's talking Latin, but let me explain. 
The term ordo salutis, which has a long uh, uh, record in Reformed theology, is the order of events that happen, logically at least, within a, a believer's experience. Effectual calling yields regeneration. Regeneration causes faith. Faith brings justification, adoption, and sanctification, and then there's uh, uh, glorification. It's the order of salvation. That's the ordo salutis. The logical, not necessarily sequential because some of them are simultaneous, but the, the, the ordering of what happens in a believer's life, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not on that list. It's just not what it's referring to. The Historia Salutis is the history of salvation. It's the great acts of salvation that God did in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And actually it goes back to the very beginning, but in, in terms of Christ, the Historia Salutis is he is, he is uh, conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. That was a mighty work of God. Then he was born of the Virgin. And then he lived under the law, fulfilling all righteousness. And then he died the sin-atoning death for the redemption of his people. Then he rose from the grave. Then he ascended into heaven. And then he baptized the church with the Holy Spirit. You see what I'm saying? The baptism of the Holy Spirit happened once for all as God's gift, the outpouring of the ascended Christ of the Holy Spirit upon the church. It belongs once for all to the Historia Salutis. It is not an event in our own lives. It is something from our perspective that has happened. It is a precondition for everything we believe and know about Christian faith and life. Christ has sent the other helper whom God the Father promised to send when Jesus departed. And he has given life and power to the followers of Christ for the sake of our witness to the gospel. Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly, John 10.10. And just as John's water baptism dramatized his ministry of preparation through repentance, so the baptism of the Holy Spirit in the events of Pentecost dramatized the nature of Christ's ministry, the reality that he has poured out the Spirit of God upon his church and also to all who believe. It is not possible to be a Christian without having entered in to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but it is not something that happened in our experience. It happened once for all. It's recorded in the book of Acts. Christ poured out his spirit upon the church. Well, if Christ's command prepared the disciples for the 10 days, they were to wait for the promise of the Father when they would be baptized by the Holy Spirit Uh, His visible ascension then marked the inauguration of that 10-day period. Luke tells in verse 9, And when he had said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And this is the biblical record of the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. His visible uh, elevation, of course, elevation is a way of exalting him raising him up in authority and dignity and respect and honor until he departed out of sight, he entered into the presence of the Father. Now, in honor of that event, liturgically-minded Christians celebrate Ascension Sunday on the 40th day after Easter, 10 days before Pentecost. I do think it's interesting, just our whole perspective. We celebrate Christmas. Some Reformed people don't do that. Uh, we celebrate Easter, the death and resurrection of Christ. There would be, I'm, actually, I'm not actually proposing this. But it, it is, we should at least, it should be in our minds. Let's not forget the great event in all history. 
when the Son of God, who became the incarnate man, the, the Son of Man, he ascended into heaven and all that that means for us. Now, it turns out that this this narrative of Luke's about the ascension of Christ is ridiculed by many skeptics. It is, uh, it is, it is discarded as a vestige of a pre-scientific age. And the argument goes something like this. I mean, we, we, what they thought was that Jesus was on the earth. He was lifted up into the heavens. He kept going higher and higher. And then he left the first heavens. He went into the higher heaven. And that's where God is. And, and they'll go, this is a real gotcha that really overthrows our whole faith. Look, we've been in above the skies and God's not there. It's the moon and there's the galaxy. We got the new the new telescope with those wonderful pictures. There's no God up there. That's the argument that is made. It's actually a childish argument. But we should take very seriously the historical nature of this account. The bodily ascension of Christ is presupposed everywhere in the New Testament. And like all the great events in the life and ministry of Jesus, it is carefully attested by eyewitnesses. Now, we, we will say, well, you're, it must have happened supernaturally. Well, yes, is the answer. But there was a reason for why this happened visually in the way that it did happen. Jesus could very easily have just vanished. Now, when you read, like at the, in Luke 24, for instance, the account of Jesus appearing in the upper room, he just suddenly appears, and then he suddenly vanishes. This is part of the nature of that eschatological body, the, the, the spirit body that he has, that he can vanish and appear. And he could have just departed. They could have been talking to him. He was done talking. He was gone. And he could have been in the presence of the Father. So what was the point of this visible display? Well, John Stott, I think, gets it right. He says the reason for a public visible ascension is surely that Jesus wanted them to know that he was actually gone, in this case, for good. Not forever, but he was ending his time with them. They were not to wait around for his next resurrection appearance. They were to wait for somebody else, the Holy Spirit, whom he would send. Now Luke records that Jesus ascended visibly on or near the Mount of Olives outside Jerusalem. Verse 9, the disciples were looking on when he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of sight. Now again, that upward movement is symbolic. It demonstrates his exaltation. It's, it's, his, it's his being elevated up into a seat of authority, glory, and power. And perhaps the chief feature is the cloud that enveloped him. Now, this shining cloud in which Jesus was lifted up played an established role that would have been well known to these Old Testament believers. And the glory cloud represented the awesome and glorious presence of God. It is the Shekinah glory. The Hebrew word Shekinah means the radiant glory. It's the glory cloud. And we see it at times in the Old Testament. It appeared on Mount Sinai when the law went forth, the clouds. Of, uh, there was, of course, it was the law, so there was fire and there was thunder, but there was a shining light of the glory cloud. One of my favorite instances was when, Mo, when Solomon had built the temple and God was going to dwell there, not physically, but he was going to dwell amidst his people. And when Solomon fizz, fizz finishes his consecration prayer in 1 Kings chapter 8, the glory cloud appears and the radiance shines so brightly that no one can enter the temple. It was a way of showing that this is the house of God and of his glory. The three disciples, James, John, and Peter, had seen the glory cloud on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus was enveloped in it, showing his end times glory. 
Luke 9, 34 and following. And so as Jesus is wrapped in the glory cloud, what's happening here is he is being enveloped in the divine presence. I, I would put it this way. He is ascending into spatial reunion with the Godhead. Now you might criticize that statement and say, well, how can you say spatial reunion with the Godhead when God the Father is everywhere? I'm just doing my best with the data we have. Here's a physical, spatial nature of it. And the glory cloud shows that he is being enveloped in the presence of the nature and and, and the, the presence of the Godhead, God the Father, together with the Holy Spirit. Jesus, who though now and hereafter hidden from physical sight, out of our tangible contact, is in the very presence of God. And in that way, he is exalted as Lord over all things. That's what Bruce Milne, I think, helpfully says. Well, there stood the apostles, gaping, gazing into the heavens with great awe and wonder when beside them appeared two men wearing white robes, verse 10, and they were angels. And this is very instructive. Again, this is going to highlight to us that this is all Historia Salutis. Because what do angels come to do in the gospel accounts? To bear witness and to give an explanation for the great events in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was the angel Gabriel who came to Mary to announce that she was she, that the, 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 the Holy One, the Son of God, was being conceived by the Holy Spirit within her womb. We think of the angels that came at Jesus' birth singing such praise to God. We're told that angels attended Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane in preparation for his crucifixion. When the tomb, when the, when the disciples on the third day went to the tomb, it was open. And there they saw angels who announced the resurrection. He is not here, he has risen. And now to signal the next step in God's great saving work through Jesus Christ, angels appear to bear testimony, and to give an explanation for the ascension of Christ. Now, as in their other appearances, the angels had come to tell us what this means, and we need that, don't we? Think of poor Mary. What was she to think if she'd gotten pregnant as a virgin? Well, she needed to know, and so the angel told her. So it was with the open tomb and the other events. And here's what they said in verse 12. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So they refer them to what this says about the second coming of Jesus Christ. They let them know you have seen him go up and what you need to know is he's going to return in the same way. As he departed in visible fashion, leaving on the cloud of glory, the Bible teaches that Jesus will visibly return. He will come on the clouds in the sight of all mankind. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, Revelation 1-7. Now, there will be differences. The ascension was private. However that was, we're only told that the The disciples who were there saw it. Well, his return will be as public as it can possibly be, and not because of the Internet, y'all. It will be every eye will see him because the the, the clouds will break open. A supernatural event like there's ever been before. Uh, the, The ascension was private. The second coming is public. Moreover, Jesus departed alone. But we're told that he will come back with millions of holy ones 
the redeemed and the angels will form his retinue. Well, let me make some comments on the meaning of the ascension. Bruce Mill notes a few. First of all, the meaning for the Lord Jesus Christ. This was a great day in the life of the Lord Jesus because it was his his coronation day. You know, there's a lot of days you can say are the coronation day. His baptism, because the Holy Spirit was given, was a census coronation. But this this is the final one. This is the full entering into his glory. He ascends in order to seat at the right hand of the majesty on high. He enters into his eschatological kingdom where he will reign forever and ever. He is able to say in light of the ascension, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Paul says he, was, uh, he, has, he, he has been entered into that kingship, that lordship for the church. He is head over all things to the church. And also that he might intercede for us as our mediator forever in heaven. Oh, what it meant for the Lord Jesus as he entered into the fullness of inheritance. He had become man. He had humbled himself in that language of Philippians 2. And now having been obedient, even to the obedient to the point of death, God had highly exalted him. He gave him the name above every name. Now he is the Lord. Now, what it means for the church is also beyond compare. Oh, what it means for us that Jesus Christ, he didn't disappear. See, that's the value of it. He didn't just not show up and we don't know where he went. Oh, no, we know where he is. He is seated at the right hand of the Father and he is there as our mediator. My friends, there will never be a day in all eternity if you are in Christ when God the Father, the supreme judge, does not look at his right hand and there beside him is your surety. That's the biblical language. The one whose finished work guarantees your acceptance into heaven. When you stand before the bar of divine justice, you have nothing to fear, not because you are not guilty. No, no, no. But because Christ is there having borne your guilt and the law of God will say of you justified because of the righteousness that is there in the presence of Christ seated at the right hand of the Father. I think of Charles Wesley's great hymn about the high priestly ministry of Christ. Fly five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me forgive him oh forgive they cry forgive him oh forgive they cry nor let that ransom sinner die what it means for you and me believing in jesus that he is seated at the right hand of the father we have a surety above and christ is there in the presence of the father and he is interceding for us an idea that should be growing in our minds it should take a growing role in our comfort in our confidence Oh, for all that's going on in my life, all the powers and all my weakness that are arrayed against me, Jesus is praying for me. The Bible tells me so. And then thirdly, what it means for our missionary service to him. Christ's exaltation, his ascension to the right hand of Father gives confidence to a weak church in a hostile world. We have a high priest above who sympathizes with us. And he is able to secure the supernatural aid we so greatly need. You know, it's this belief that has inspired so many bold missionaries like John Payton, who went to the New Hebrides Islands, he and his wife alone, and they went among the cannibals. And they were not eaten as they were, uh, people said they would be. They bore testimony to the Lord Jesus Christ, to his birth, his life, and especially his death and resurrection. How could they do that? Because they knew that they were serving one 
to whom all authority in heaven and on earth had been given. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. Well, sandwiched between Jesus' command to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit and then the event of the ascension of Christ into heaven is the dialogue that provides our chief instruction in this text. Before Jesus departed, the disciples asked what to them was a pressing question. We see the question in verse 6. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, that's the question that they asked. They just spent 40 days with Jesus getting a biblical theological education. He had told them about his kingdom. He told them the Holy Spirit was coming. And so they asked, are you now at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They'd heard Jesus talking about the promise of the Father, the coming of the Holy Spirit, and they interpreted him to mean the resurrection of Israel, the restoration of Israel's national and earthly sovereignty. John Calvin wrote, there are as many errors in this question as there are words. Bruce Milne points out the verb, the noun, and the adverb all betray doctrinal confusion about God's purpose and kingdom. He's right. Will you restore? Now that means that they saw a resumption of Israel's prior glory in the times of David and Solomon. The noun Israel shows that they envisioned a national entity defined by a national uh, uh, entity defined by an ethnic identity. The adverb at this time shows that what they really wanted to happen was redemptive history to come to an end. They'd been saved. That's all they cared about. They wanted they wanted Israel to win. Well, that wraps it up. Let's have the final judgment right here and now. What else do we need? That was their way of thinking. Everybody else would be brought to judgment. Israel would be vindicated and glorified. F.F. Bruce comments, their present question appears to have been the last flicker of their former burning expectation of an imminent theocracy with themselves as its chief executives. Now, we want to speak to their credit because they did connect some dots. They connected the coming of the Holy Spirit with the arrival of God's kingdom. The ascension was Jesus' final and full coronation as Lord of Lords and Kings of Kings, and it was the precursor of the sending of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus himself had very carefully joined together, he'd identified the coming of the Holy Spirit as the key manifestation of God's kingdom. And they had gotten that. The coming of the Spirit means the kingdom of God. And they were right. You think of it in Matthew 12, 28, when Jesus was being denied by the, by the Pharisees after he'd cast out some demons. He makes this highly instructive comment. Matthew 12, 28. If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom of God is manifested by the power of the Holy Spirit to cast down the kingdom of Satan. Richard Gaffin puts it this way, the Holy Spirit and the kingdom are alternative ways of describing God's ultimate blessing. They are both, the Holy Spirit and the kingdom, are the highest beatitude the Father has to give. And so we see here is a reinforcement of the idea that the Spirit in the ministry of Jesus is the power of the Holy Spirit. It is the manifestation of the, spirit, of the kingdom. The disciples rightly connected the two, and we should as well. 
Now, Jesus corrects the disciples. He said to them in verse 7, here's his initial answer, it is not for you to know the times or season that the Father has fixed by his own authority. They're thinking about the final judgment and well, we would know the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He hadn't yet been ascended. They hadn't heard what the angels had to say. They were saying the final judgment is also the second coming of Christ. And we're reminded here of what Jesus said in Matthew 24, 36 in the Olivet Discourse that no one knows the time of that event. We're not to... In to invest ourselves in speculation about when, what day, what month, what year will be the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's interesting. To a certain extent, it's rightly on our minds because it is the next great event for which we are longing. When you pray, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, you're asking yourself, I wonder if it's true. Uh, A few years ago, not only a couple of years ago, I was sitting on my patio in a summer evening and suddenly there was some light in the night sky. It was dark and there was a crazy light above. I don't think it was UFAs. I don't know what it was. I was pleased that my first thought was, oh, I hope it's today. Maybe it's the second coming. Maybe it's the return of our Lord. It was encouragement to me. That was my instinctive first thought. We should be thinking that. And yet the Bible tells us clearly that no one knows, not even the Son, but the Father has reserved himself, Matthew 24, 36, the timing of the end of all things and the second coming of Christ. Now, how it is that the Father can know something and the Son cannot, I do not know. But that is what Jesus so clearly said. Now, this means that we should be immune to all attempts to persuade us of a time when Jesus is coming. And church history has just been littered with those who are making claims. The most recent one is that of Harold Camping. Harold Camping was actually a very useful Christian. He had a, a, a Bible, a radio call-in show. When I was a new believer, I used to often listen to it. It was on family radio, and he often gave biblically sound, reformed answers. And he got it into his head that uh, he, was, he was able to determine the, the month and the year in which Jesus was going to return. And he actually gave, here's the problem, he, he did it several times. He was wrong. Well, that was not the problem was the thing itself. I remember one time I was driving. I was living in New York. Sharon and I were engaged. I was driving home to, back to Philadelphia to see her. I was listening to his radio show, and he was talking. This is when he first started doing it about the, the month and the year. I forget what it was uh, when Jesus was going to return. And a caller calls in and says, Brother Camping, Jesus said, no one will know the day or the hour. And, and he answered, I am not saying the day or the hour. I'm saying the month and the year. And I'm thinking that... We have lost the thread, I think, at this point. Well, we are not to be, and we're not to be overly uh, preoccupied with the details of what the Father has restricted from anyone but himself knowing. Now, Jesus continued, and some people say he was annoyed by it, so he changed the subject. He is actually not changing the subject. They had given a wrong interpretation of the coming of the Spirit, and the coming of the kingdom. He's now going to give them and us the right interpretation. Acts 1 verse 8, this vitally important verse, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. In the coming of the Holy Spirit, for whom they were to wait, the apostles were going to receive power from on high that would enable them to succeed in accomplishing their mission. You see, there's actually, it's a greater kingdom than that which they had envisioned. It's a greater power than that which they had hoped for in their earthly uh, uh, kingdom. It is the power of heaven 
to do that noblest of all works, the work of the kingdom of Christ in the spread of the gospel. Bruce, uh, F.F. Bruce writes, when the Holy Spirit came upon them, Jesus assured them they would be vested with heavenly power, that power by which, in the event, their mighty works were accomplished and by which their preaching was made effective. Now, that's what we see in the book of Acts. You're going to see the apostles accomplishing miracles. That's because of the Holy Spirit that was, uh, was upon them, the power that was upon them. You're going to see Peter preaching the Pentecost sermon and 3,000 people are converted in that one sermon. How did that happen? Was it his personality? No. Was it his logic? No, it was the power upon him, the Holy Spirit, had come. Uh, the Greek word here for power is dunamis. We get the word dynamite from it. It's the power to overcome all obstacles. It's the power to effect supernatural change. The power to open the heart so that sinners are saved by believing in Jesus. Now I do need to point out that the you of verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, is referring to the apostles and distinctively to the apostles. This is not here a broad you. He is not addressing the church as a whole. The you is the apostles. They've been commissioned as apostles and they are the you who will receive power. And again, the power that they wield is recorded in the book of Acts. I've mentioned some of them as they've gone forward. And this reminds us that there was a uniqueness to the apostles' ministry and particularly to the display of power We think of their performing of miracles, their healing people. We're going to see the apostles in the name of Jesus saying, be healed, and they are healed. And many well-meaning Christians go, well, we ought to be able to do the same thing because we are Acts is real Christianity. Well, no, this is the the book of Acts in in its literary form specifically records the works of the apostles, the work of the continuing work of Christ through the apostles as they received power as the Holy Spirit came upon them. And so there's always going to be a discontinuity between any expectation that we should be able to do what the apostles did. You see, the apostles received a definite work in the, in the book of Acts, and that was the laying of the foundation of the church to be built on in all history. Now, here's the good news. Actually, it's very good news that this is referring to the apostles because we're one holy Catholic apostolic church. We are blessed by the work that they began and that they concluded. But here's the thing, that there's other places in the Bible that show that the same power comes upon us, not in the same way as the apostles. But we have the power. You think of the power that Christians wield when they get on their knees and pray. We underestimate the power of that. Uh, that the apostles believed in the power of prayer. We, we need to believe in the power of prayer, the victory of faith that we, we have, the faith in Christ and his word, and we boldly proclaim it. It has dunamis to break down strongholds. That's what Paul said about, his, about the preaching of the gospel. And so this is formally the apostles who receive power, and they will have a uniqueness. By, by the way, why did they have the miracle-working power. Well, the book of Hebrews is going to tell us in chapter 2 as an attestation by those miracles, by those signs and wonders of the gospel that they were giving the task of introducing to the world as they spread it. Hebrews 2 tells us very clearly because that was their work. They were given signs and wonders and we are not given signs and wonders. But with that distinction being observed, we, are, we enter into that you by the power of the Holy Spirit 
as he blesses the word of God in our witness, in our preaching, and in answer to our prayers. See, this is what this is what I'm talking about, Peter and James and John, you earthbound thinkers about an earthly kingdom. Your, the spirit is the kingdom and you will receive power from on high to do what? And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. They were to be the heralds of Jesus in the world. And here again, the you, the, the immediate reference of the you is the apostles themselves. Uh, the book of Acts is, in fact, the record of the early church, but it's also, and particularly, it is the record of the apostles commissioned by Christ in his continuing work, empowered by the coming Holy Spirit, as they laid the foundation of the church in history upon which we now are building, and it was to spread from Judea to, from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the end of the world. Richard Gaffin hurts our feelings by pointing out that this is not a suitable text for a missionary con- missions conference. And I have used it at missions conference. I think he's wrong, but only after we first said that he's right. He says the Great Commission is about the church. What the book of Acts, the book of Acts, the, the, the Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth, just it, by the way, it is by inference, an excellent missionary strategy. We often think about that. I've preached it. Uh, let's start at home. And let's witness the gospel at home. And that way we get, we start in our little Jerusalem and we go from there to the ends of the earth. That is very good logic. But here it serves as a table of contents for the book of Acts. This statement from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, it is formally about the ministry of the apostles as witnesses in the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, People talk about Acts 29. There's 28 chapters in the book of Acts. And so Acts 29 meant is that we're continuing the story. Yes and no. We are not continuing the story of the apostolic foundation of the church. That has been completed. People say we need, to, we need to tie up the loose ends at the end of the book of Acts. There are no loose ends at the end of the book of Acts. They've gone, they started in Jerusalem. They went to Judea and Samaria. They've reached the ends of the earth. Acts 28, 31 ends that Paul is proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus in all boldness and without hindrance. The book of Acts records the successful work of, the, of Christ through his apostles in the power of the Holy Spirit, laying the foundation of the church from Jerusalem to Rome that's the foundation of the church but here's the interest here's the exciting thing now we start building on that super on that foundation we build the superstructure and the point of a foundation is to lay the blueprint and Christ is our chief cornerstone and he gives us the Holy Spirit in the great commission which is to all of us he says surely I am with you Eve always to the end of the age and he pours out his church upon his spirit upon the church the book of Acts records the successful work of Christ by the Spirit through the apostles in bearing witness to the ends of the earth, laying the foundation of the world that's symbolically from Jerusalem to Rome. That was once for all accomplished, and now in history we are building upon it, and we're doing it by the same means. So let me close with three applications. And the first is this, that the kingdom of Christ is spiritual. And I mean that with a capital S. When we talk about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, it is a spiritual kingdom. 
Jesus said to Pontius Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. And so we should not think of the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of God in worldly ways. You don't look on a map and there's Russia, there's Turkey, there's Brazil. Oh, and there's the kingdom of Jesus. I I, I love missionary maps with with little pins. But the whole world belongs to him and is destined for his glory. But it's, it's not like earthly kingdoms. The power of Christ's kingdom is not political. It's not economic. It's not military. John Stott writes, it is spread by witnesses, not soldiers, through a gospel of peace, not by a declaration of war, by the work of the spirit, not by force of arms, not by political intrigue or revolutionary violence. The kingdom of God in the spirit of Christ will have values that will always clash with secular ideas of earthly kingdoms. And yes, Jesus teaches us, Romans 13 tells us, we're to honor secular authorities. They're established by God. There will be conflict and our supreme loyalty will always belong to King, to King Jesus. The kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of God is the realm of the Holy Spirit. How will I know when I am seeing the kingdom of God? You are seeing the effects of the Holy Spirit as they are described in the Bible. Secondly, the kingdom mission of the church is therefore the great commission. Huge amount of debates. If you said to me, what are some of the two or three of the most pressing issues in the reformed evangelical world today? No question in my mind that I rightly identifying the mission of the church is very high on that list. And the kingdom of God comes by the spirit of Christ upon his witnesses as the gospel goes forth throughout the world. You'll hear talk about we're building the kingdom of God and what they're doing is they're building hospitals. They're, they're putting together microfinancing banks. They're, they're arranging affordable housing. By the way, these are all things that secular leaders should be doing. It's the work of mayors. God, the Lord bless them for doing it. But you can have all of those things and have death You can have the spirit of hell while you have all of those sorts of things. No, the kingdom mission of Christ is the proclaiming of Jesus as Lord and Savior in the power of the Holy Spirit so that sinners believe are saved and they enter into the gospel-spreading work by which alone men and women receive eternal life. That is the kingdom of Christ. And so when there is the claims of the kingdom of God, But the gospel is not being proclaimed. It is not the kingdom of Christ and it is not missions. When Christ is not being proclaimed in his death and resurrection and the power of the Holy Spirit for the building of the church and the spreading of that gospel, that is the mission of the kingdom of God. You go, what about social justice? Don't Christians have to deal with poverty and racism and all kinds of injustice? And the answer is, as a church, that is not the mission that is given to the church. The Great Commission is go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded. Well, don't Christians care about it? Yes, Christians do care. In fact, nobody has done more for all of these issues in history than the followers of Christ. But it's been the downstream effects of the spread of the gospel, of the Spirit changing our hearts. By the way, when he says teaching them to observe everything I've commanded, that that means we speak on all these issues. But the work of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is the proclamation of the gospel. It is not the concerns uh, of the earthly realm, of the worldly realm. It's not political agenda. Oh, Christians pray. 
We care about abortion. You bet we do. We care about poverty. We care about racism. And Christians are the ones in their secular roles. We're also members of the kingdom of the world. And they are bringing Christ into those things. But it is the king who gives the mission to his church, to his army. And the mission of the church is the spread, the witness of the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit. The gospel proclamation of the crucified, risen, and ascended Christ for the glory of God's grace in the salvation of the lost is the mission of the kingdom of God and the church. Well, thirdly, lastly, the kingdom advances by the ministry of God's word and by the proclamation of the gospel. You will be my witnesses. They will bear verbal testimony. Oh, it's accompanied by life testimony. We often emphasize that it's accompanied by prayer, and prayer brings the power of the Holy Spirit in real ways. But witnessing involves the proclamation of the word of God and and the the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Gaffin writes this, Christ shows how kingdom and gospel, the church-building gospel, are interchangeable. The gospel message, empowered by the Holy Spirit, witnessed by his servants, is the work of the kingdom of God. And you see that in the book of Acts. The book of the story of Acts begins with the coming of the Spirit to empower the apostles as witnesses to Christ and his gospel. How does it conclude? By telling us, and we're supposed to say, wow, that's awesome. Paul is unhindered as he continues to proclaim the kingdom of God at the ends of the world in Rome. That's how the book of Acts organizes its story. We do the work of Christ. We advance his kingdom by the ministry of his word and the power of the spirit in answer to our prayers, which the Lord has sent. Well, let me conclude with the words of the angel as he speaks to the disciples as they're gaping into heaven where Christ has ascended. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand and look into heaven? And we're reminded we are not to speculate on Christ's return, nor are we to labor in building earthly Christian culture castles as if that was our victory. We're to have our eyes now on the world. We're to be his witnesses in the world. You and I, if we're going to take up what Jesus has given us, we're to be looking with the eyes of Christ and to see the hopelessness around us, to see the despair. Is this not what's around us? The, the, the slavery to sin, the fear and loathing of a world that knows not God. We're to be planning and thinking and investing, laboring in the fields where the harvest is white. We are to be his witnesses. That is where our eyes are to be in this age of the world. Christ has ascended to the Father. He is coming back. Now the angels say, don't be staring into heaven. Don't be just having your privatized spiritual experience. Take a look at the missions field Jesus has put before you. Be, we are his witnesses. We rest upon the foundation-laying work of the apostles, and now we are to build up that church, trusting the power of the Spirit he has promised and which has come. Well, Jesus said, All authority, because of the ascension in heaven on earth, has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And then he gave a promise. He said, I will will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Father in heaven, we thank you for the message of this passage. 
We thank you for the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is not idle. Oh, far from it. In every way, he is there for our benefit. But Father, we're not to randomly decide what our lives are going to be about, what the church is going to do, what, what, what are going to be our priorities. And Father, we thank you for the work of Christ through the apostles so long ago that the foundation has been laid. We have it in our Bibles. We have the apostolic word. You give it to us. Now, Father, would you send your spirit as we proclaim it, as we tell the world about Jesus, we tell the person sitting next to us about Jesus. Uh, Father, would you give us power, the power of your Holy Spirit, that the, 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 the kingdom of Satan might be broken and the kingdom of Christ might advance as sinners are believed and through believing are saved. May you have glory in Jesus' name. Amen.